Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. I've moved back a little bit with the sun. If the sun ends up hitting you, feel free to move as well uh, as you need to during uh, our time reflecting on the scriptures. Um, I was thinking the last few Sundays have been really fun. Uh, We've had feast days lined up like dominoes. Uh, We wrapped up the Easter season celebrating our Lord's resurrection. Uh, We marked the ascension of our Lord, where the risen Lord Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, From there, he sent the Holy Spirit upon us, upon the church, and we celebrated that on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Last week, and I actually love the way the church does this, they go, wait a minute, the Spirit's come. Uh, What do we do with all this? And so we had Trinity Sunday, trying to uh, reflect on, but even more adore, uh, the mystery and majesty uh, of the Holy Trinity. Um, Today's a pretty full day as well. Uh, It's Father's Day uh, on the Hallmark calendar, and we don't mind that. We just kind of let that stay with Hallmark. Um, Today is the first uh, celebration of our new national federal holiday, Juneteenth. Um, I was up in Washington, D.C. this week, and they were getting ready Uh, for the first celebration, which was cool. Um, I spent almost 15 years in Texas where that was something we were really used to. So it's fun to see that celebration uh, spreading and being acknowledged. Uh, But in the church on this Sunday, this liturgical calendar day, (laughs) we have a very interesting title. This is the second Sunday after Pentecost. And what you need to know about the second Sunday after Pentecost is that this launches... Sunday after Sunday after Sunday of Sundays after Pentecost. In the church's uh, life together, this is known as ordinary time. Uh, We're not celebrating the great feasts of the faith. We're not celebrating the fasts of the faith. We're thinking about what does it mean for the Spirit to indwell us for normal, everyday discipleship and life uh, with King Jesus Um, It's what it means to be indwelled by the Spirit, living day by day, week by week, month by month, even year by year with the work that God has given us to do and that the Spirit empowers us to do. Um, And I find this really helpful. A a whole uh, chunk, six months about of the year to go, what's it mean to be an ordinary follower of Jesus? And the reason I find that helpful is that I've spent most of my life Uh, bouncing between great hope in the gospel, um, great hope in the love of God, and and to be honest, profound disillusionment with other Christians and churches, and even with myself. Um, As I've not followed the Lord in the way uh, that I thought I should, it's worth saying, uh, what should our expectation be of normal, faithful Christianity? Um, I know in the churches that I grew up in, and what I would say, I I probably continue to see here in North America, um, deep discipleship, really following Jesus. Well, that seemed like an optional extra for super Christians. Um, Opening ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit, that seemed like an optional extra for super Christians. Uh, Doing the work that God had given us to do, sharing our faith, optional extras for super Christians. But I'm increasingly convinced That deep discipleship, following Jesus fully, uh, should be normative and normal and even ordinary. 
And then I'm left with the question, how do we call the church, how do we call God's people um, into deep discipleship uh, without stepping on some landmines? There's some landmines right there at the front of spiritual pride that we can take pride in our discipleship or, or legalism uh, towards those who don't seem to measure up to that definition. And again, none of us measure up to the Lord Jesus. And so I want to look at this passage in Luke 9 and talk about faithful, uh, ordinary, uh, normal Christianity. That's okay. Um, there's a telling uh, series of conversations between Jesus and his disciples in Luke 9. They center on his identity, his mission, what he calls his followers to. And we're going to see first what people said about Jesus. Secondly, what Jesus said about himself. And then third, what Jesus said about people and what he calls them into. So first, uh, what people said about Jesus, verses 18 through 20. Um, the thing to know that at this point in the gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is slowly becoming a big deal. He's had an extensive public ministry of teaching and of healing, and it is drawing attention. People are trying to figure out, who, who is this guy? Um, uh, just a little bit before this, in Luke chapter 9, uh, my heading says, Herod is perplexed by Jesus. The local governing authority, the Roman puppet, who is this guy? What's he up to? A few chapters before that, John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends one of his servants, go and ask him, is this what we were waiting on? Is this it? Are you really the one to fulfill all of God's promises uh, to his people? Folks are trying to figure out who Jesus was. And people are flocking to see him and hear him and receive healing from him. And so he conducts uh, really just kind of a public opinion poll with his closest disciples. Uh, who do the crowds say that I am? What do people think? And they tell him, well, some think maybe you're John the Baptist or Elijah, one of the prophets. What's that tell you? Well, people knew that he was somehow speaking for God. God was at work in his life in a unique and special way, but they still uh, hadn't figured out exactly what that meant. Those are the crowds that have just had um, maybe a periphery experience of Jesus. And so then he asks his closest friends, well, what about you? Uh, who do y'all say that I am? Um, and Peter answers simply, uh, the Christ of God, the long-awaited Messiah. Um, and let's just pause for a moment. Sweet Peter doesn't get many answers right in his life. Uh, I think this is the first time <laughs> that he's ever answered a question correctly. And in one of the other Gospels, Jesus even throws a little shade to be like, yeah, you didn't come up with that on your own. <laughs> My father showed that to you. Uh, but Peter gets it. Somehow, uh, he's starting to get it. You are the Christ of God, the long-awaited Messiah, God's representative, the one who would fulfill every promise God had made to his people in and through uh, this person, Jesus. And I would say that um, initially, just getting that right, it, that's the gate, that's the entry point, that's the starting point for faithful Christianity, that we recognize the work of God in and through Jesus, his son. How Jesus fulfills all the promises 
of our Lord, how in his life and death and resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, even his coming again, we see that this is how God is at work in the world, to reconcile all things, to restore all things, to make all things new. It's focused on the Lord Jesus. See, Jesus is, uh, at the one hand, the most extraordinary person who has ever lived. That's part of the magnetism, the, the appeal. And yet he was also remarkably ordinary. Remarkably ordinary. Um, for his work, he's a, he's a carpenter. L- literally a craftsman. If you go near Nazareth, even today, there are huge stoneworks that Herod commissioned that Jesus and his uh, uh, stepdad Joseph and probably his closest friends, that's where they worked. That was the work site. They carved wood, they cut stone, they built things. He's a general contractor, a blue-collar guy. Uh, Jesus is uh, from a nowhere town. Uh, Later in the Gospels, um, Jesus and his friends come to Jerusalem, and you remember they make fun of his hometown, and they make fun of his accent. Uh, They talk to Peter and go, wait a minute, no, 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 I, I know that hick accent. You're from Galilee. You're from the backwoods. How extraordinary, yet how odd that this is how God is at work, fulfilling all of his promises, um, sending his son to take on flesh and dwell among us. Not as a pampered prince like Moses in a palace, but a blue-collar carpenter from a backwater town with a mother, Joseph, his stepfather, siblings, a job, friends. He's as human as you and I, yet he's also fully God. That's why they can't figure him out. Um, And and one thing before we go much further, and Jesus is going to talk about this in a moment. But when we talk about Jesus being ordinary, it's worth recognizing that this is actually something new in his life. Because formerly, uh, Jesus was uh, exalted in glory. Um, And then he comes, he humbles himself. He submits to the plan of God uh, to go from the right hand of God into a stable. And then after his resurrection, he is exalted again. Let Let me read this to you in Philippians 2. Paul reflects on this. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we say he's ordinary, I'm not saying he's mundane. I'm saying he's beautifully humble. And he submits to the plan of God before he is exalted. Look at what Jesus says about himself. Uh, Verses 21 through 22. First, and again, poor Peter never got an answer right. He can't even tell anyone. He says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Now, people aren't going to understand my identity as the Christ of God because they think that's a different vocation. 
What I've come to do, he says, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed, and then on the third day uh, be raised. He says, I'm the son of man. Um, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, he actually talks about the son of man. Uh, the son of man is this divine, glorious figure who approaches the ancient of days. In other words, when Jesus says, Peter says, I, you are the Christ of God, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus says, you have no idea. You have no idea. I'm the son of man. I, I'm divinity. I'm the one who is able to approach the ancient of days. And then even how much more mysterious that he is rejected and killed, but then raised again to life. What he's doing is he's, he's deconstructing their idea of the Messiah before he reconstructs it and gives them their lifelong vocation. He gives them this calling. He says, the person who wants to follow me, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Um, now, I actually find this pretty interesting because I've grown up in kind of the, the broader evangelical church world. Um, and we do a lot to try to let people know about Jesus and the gospel for the first time. Um, and usually it's really positive. And it, it should be. Jesus is good news. What he has done for us is glorious. But, but we're used to something that approaches people and says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does, but that flattens out the story a little bit. Uh, Jesus says, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Um, I've never seen that on an evangelistic track or a bumper sticker. This call to self-denial. Uh, John Tyson is a pastor in New York City. says one of the great conflicts of our age is between self-denial and self-fulfillment. Two different gospels at war with each other, being preached with tremendous ferocity. I mean, think about it. Everything in your life is conditioned to help you find fulfillment in expressing yourself, in making yourself comfortable, and seeking, I would say, an anemic version of the good life but in saying, you deserve this. It's okay. Look for comfort. Don't worry about things that are hard. Don't certainly worry about things that are difficult, let alone painful. Avoid pain at all costs. And what does Jesus say? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's an incredibly high bar. And I would just say ultimately what he's saying is don't simply follow me for what you might get out of it. And there, there are manifold benefits to the Christian faith and following God. Don't miss that. There is forgiveness of sins. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're transformed into the likeness of Jesus and will dwell with him forever. But the call to discipleship is not about what we get out of it. It's about who he is. And what it means to truly be human and pursue uh, life in the image of God. Uh, there's been spiritual masters for hundreds of years, thousands of years, saying this is what it means to follow Jesus, to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Thomas Akempis uh, writes a, in his book, The Imitation of Christ. Listen to this. It's, it's fairly long, 
but man. Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who would bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of his passion. Many admire his miracles, but few follow him and the humiliation of the cross. And that's because self-denial is not natural. It's not easy. Everything is at war with the idea of self-denial. And I'll just give you one thing before we keep going. Um, If that's a struggle for you, how do we deny ourselves? Um, Instead of thinking that in really abstract terms, I want to give you one or two things that you could actually try. Maybe even during this season of ordinary time to grow um, in your relationship with Jesus and and grow in self-denial. Historically, the church has recommended spiritual disciplines um, that actually train us and teach us to say no to ourselves. Um, and, and it does this in really small ways so that it becomes more natural for us to do it in larger ways. And so the church has recommended, uh, they call spiritual disciplines of abstinence, things that we don't do, things that we deny to train us in self-denial. And so these might be things like silence. It's really hard not to speak. Um, I mean, and it's hard not to speak when you're on your own. But think about if you're in a vigorous conversation, the need to defend ourselves to prove ourselves right at every turn. Silence. Um, Fasting is one that Jesus talks about. Uh, It's amazing when you fast, you realize how primal we are (laughs) and how hungry we are and how dependent we are. There are really simple ways of engaging fasting as a regular discipline that you're just training yourself and saying no to yourself. These disciplines of um, abstinence, The flip side of that is we talk about disciplines of engagement. So if you're new to the faith, if you're exploring Jesus, engage that. Uh, Read through the Gospels. Meet this person. Engage in prayer. Um, Engage in generosity. Engage in service. There's historically been disciplines of, of abstinence, things we don't do, and disciplines of engagement, things we do. And part of Christian wisdom is knowing which of those to pursue over the next season. And if you try and pursue them all, um, it's not going to work. I'm actually going on a backpacking trip in about a month. And so I decided it was time to train for my backpacking trip. I bought new hiking boots. I got new hiking socks. And I grabbed a pack, and I put about 30 pounds on it and went out and did five miles. And ended up flat on my back (laughs) and could not hike again for three weeks. Um, if you try to do all of it at once, uh, it's, it's, gonna be, it's not going to be productive. But you pick one thing. Pray about one thing. Talk to a friend about what's one thing you see where I can grow in my faith. And you'll begin this process of self-denial, taking up your cross, following Jesus, focusing on Jesus. Uh, not looking inside ourselves for fulfillment and happiness, but looking to Jesus, adoring him. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, adoring Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A friend of mine recently said, the whole business of church is looking at Jesus together and following him together. Um, And again, don't hear me as harsh in this. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, and C.S. Lewis is one of the most reluctant converts of the last century. Uh, Brilliant. His book, Mere Christianity, says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, even that I finally begin to have a real personality all my own. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and even the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. He says, keep back nothing. And nothing that you have been given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. We seek the Lord. We seek his kingdom. We seek his righteousness And then things are added unto us. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I think that unfortunately out of a good desire for evangelism to tell people about the good news of Jesus, we have just, uh, well, we've turned Christianity into a product. We've tried to package it and sell it. And I think this was done out of a good and earnest desire to see people come to Jesus. But man, those consumer forces are powerful. And when we kind of use those methods of the world, we get worldly results. And we produce consumers. Uh, Dallas Willard, who is now with the Lord, Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC. Um, It's had a remarkable impact on the American church in the area of spiritual disciplines and discipleship. Um, Dr. Willard says consumer Christianity is now normative. And this was probably 25, 30 years ago. The consumer Christian is one who utilizes the grace of God for forgiveness and the services of the church for special occasions, but does not give his or her life and innermost thoughts, feelings, and intentions over to the kingdom of the heavens. So such Christians are not inwardly transformed and not committed to it. In another place, he's a little cheeky. Um, He calls these vampire Christians. He says, you're just in it for the blood. You're just in it for what you get. You're just in it for eternal life. You don't want to take up your cross daily. You don't want to deny yourself. You're not trying to follow Jesus. You're focused on what you can get out of this. Well, friends, that's a a navel-gazing, sub-Christian, selfish version of faith. And what I found is that that version works when things are good. If life is just skipping along well, Um, If you're healthy and happy and you're attaining your goals, um, well, that kind of works as like an appendage on the side. Um, But friends, when when you have pain and suffering and loss, when things get hard, 
Uh, Jesus says here, take up your cross, not his cross. We can't actually bear his cross. He bore that for us. But our cross, the difficulty in our own life, when that comes, consumer Christianity does not hold up. Uh, Being in it for just what we get out of it does not hold up. We need something sturdier and more reliable. We need the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and a focus on the Lord Jesus. And we need to be training ourselves in uh, spiritual disciplines. And I've actually become more convinced of this based on the last few years. Uh, The last few years has been a pressure test on the North American church. And we saw that consumer Christianity certainly uh, could not and did not hold up to things like a pandemic, hard conversations, divisive politics, economic uncertainty, sickness, death, isolation, loneliness, work from home. Think about all those. Many dropped out of church and faith altogether. I read a recent stat. Um, And it's it's from Pew Research, and Dr. Father Bill Stanford is a statistician and assures me it's decent um, and it's reliability. Um, They estimate that about 30% of those who attended church regularly prior to the pandemic have not been back and have no plans to do so. The pressure test of these difficult years uh, found their faith wanting. Or maybe they're disillusionment with other Christians or churches. Um, When things are hard, what holds up? What endures? What does it mean to follow uh, God together? And by the way, I think those uh, are friends who who may have kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, My prayer is that they would, well, they would return for a fresh, transformative encounter with God Almighty. Not with this anemic version of a consumer faith. Here's the other thing. I'll close with this in a, in a, in a little bit. How we do? Okay, we're doing okay on time. Um, so deny yourselves. Uh, the church has recommended spiritual disciplines of abstinence that we talked about. Follow Jesus. The church has recommended disciplines of engagement, worship, adoring Jesus together. What about taking up your cross? Um, it's my thought that that's maybe the hardest thing to get our head around here. Um, Persecution and following Jesus unto death, that's not normal in this part of the church, right? Sometimes there's incredible tragedy. Just this week in Birmingham, uh, at an Episcopal church, they were having a potluck, and someone went in and opened fire, and three people lost their lives. But that's surprising. No one goes to a potluck expecting that. A few years ago, at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, they were having a Bible study. Dylan Roof walks in, opens fire. Um, we actually had one of the ladies who died. Her husband is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. His story is remarkable um, as he reflected on that loss. But those are, those are surprising. You don't go to church expecting that. Um, I will say this week I was in Washington, D.C. at our annual Anglican Church in North America meetings. Um, we heard a, a lengthy sermon from the Archbishop of all Nigeria because they preach a little longer over there. You're, if you're checking your watch, don't even. <laughs> but in his part of Nigeria, it's very normal that you may go to church expecting uh, an attack. Um, we actually were rejoicing that just that week, one of the bishops and his wife had been kidnapped and ransomed. 
Um, they had just got them back. He said they were in hospital trying to recover from the shock and just the cardiac effect of being taken captive. And so again, I don't want uh, to downplay that. that. That can be real. And there are parts of, of the world where faithful brothers and sisters face that. And so take up your cross is pretty applicable. But for us, I think that's hard to get our head around. What would it mean to die for Jesus? I think it's a little easier to think about what it means to live for Jesus. Um, about a decade ago, I went to the Holy Land, uh, Israel. We're actually going back in November, Lord willing. Um, and we've got spots if you're interested. But we went to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And I don't think the ordinariness of Jesus and the humility of Christ had struck me until I went to Nazareth. Because it really is the, kind of the middle of nowhere. It's dusty. It's removed. Um, and, and you go into uh, Nazareth, and there was this one remarkable site we visited. Um, there's uh, most of the sites where they think something significant happened. There's a church or a monastery, something to kind of mark that space. And so there's this convent in Nazareth, and it's over some archaeological remains. Um, so you go down this winding stair, and there's this little bitty hut, this home. Um, and they say, hey, we think um, this could have been the childhood home of Jesus. And you're like, first of all, I don't know how everyone fit in this house. <laughs> this looks like a studio apartment that's been shrunk. Um, but they said, if it's not his childhood home, this would have been representative of the childhood home of Jesus. Now they've actually done more work and think it's more likely that this was preserved in memory and revered as that's where Jesus grew up, which is kind of cool. But this, this particular convent, these nuns, um, they actually focus on, uh, they're called the Little Sisters of Nazareth, and they focus on what they call the hidden years of Jesus' life. Here's what they mean by that. For 30 years, three decades, the Word of God made flesh just lived a life. He worked and he ate, and he drank, and he slept, and he had friends. And, and he did it with all of the holiness we would later see. He did it without sin. He did it perfectly and beautifully, and it was ordinary. And so they look at his life and say, um, he had three years of public ministry, 30 years that were hidden. And, and none of us is going to be called to literally bear the sins of the world. <laughs> um, but that, those 30 hidden years, what does it mean to follow God in the in and out day of life? That's what they focus on. Um, and I just remember the penny kind of drop and go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I can't get my head around potentially dying at any moment for Jesus, but to realize for 30 years he lived a life more similar to mine, that's helpful. Um, I, I can actually wrap my head around that. What one author says, Jesus came to Nazareth, the place of the hidden life of ordinary life, of family life, of prayer and work, obscurity, silent virtues practiced with no witness other than God, his friends, and his neighbors. Nazareth, the place where most people lead their lives. Should not despise the ordinary life God calls us to live as his children. Normal, everyday, ordinary lives of faithfulness are beautiful to the Lord. And I actually think the 30 hidden years of Jesus' life are a sign of God's approval as our good creator 
of normal lives lived faithfully for his glory. Growing in holiness, loving God, loving our neighbor, seeing the Spirit transform us, doing the work that God has given us to do. That's ordinary Christianity. That's normal discipleship. So we're left with the question, what does it mean for God to be at work in and through you? What's the ordinary life he's called you to? And and if Jesus had 30 hidden years, man, what would that look like if he was living your life? If he had the relationships you have, the vocation you have, the responsibilities you have, the work he's given you to do, what would it look like for that to be done in a way that conforms the image of Christ? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.